sit comfortably. Morning everyone. Uh, I'm going to speak today about the topic of desire. Um, and as some background to doing it, so the last um, while, while I was in there, I knew there was a, a book written by um, Mark Epstein, who's one of my favourite authors on Buddhism and psychotherapy on design. I thought I would read it um, just to see if there's anything missing or something else that maybe I, I didn't understand about it. And, um, and in this book he's saying that the desire is often very misunderstood in Buddhism or from his perspective. And, um, and reading through the book or just skimming it, there weren't any surprises in it for me. Um, and, uh, and I think I understand why. It just seemed to be a book that was um, validating what I understood already rather than something that was challenging. But desire gets a bad name in Buddhism. Um, the idea being that we crave after things, you know, and desire after objects, whatever, and they only just bring disappointment. And the, the story of the Buddha's life is that he, he gives up sexual intimacy, gives up his family, gives up wealth, material things, and uh, renounces, renounces all these things, you know, become a forest monk and, and, and awakens. And so a lot of the Southeast Asian Buddhist traditions, you know, follow the importance of renunciation. You know, if desire causes suffering, then you, you cut off the desire, you know, so that you don't suffer anymore. Um, but it was never my understanding of what desire was in Buddhism. When not, it wasn't the way I was taught by my teachers. And I think I understand the, the, the uh, difference in that practice now. But um, as um, Buddhism went from India to Tibet, you know, China and Japan, the um, Theravadans kept to the very strict idea of um, renunciation and celibacy and so on. When it went to Tibet, there was that tradition, but it's there that also that it started to um, develop into Tantra. And most at this point, everyone associates Tantra with sex, like Tantric sex goes together. Well, that's part of it. But really what Tantra is, and what I really want to talk about in, in the broader sense, is another skillful way of working with desire, whatever it is. You know, it could be sex, it could be anything that's desired. And it's that, in that context that I want to talk about it. But when... Um, uh, Buddhism then went to China and particularly Japan, the Japanese could never really embrace the celibacy aspect of, and that kind of renunciation aspect of Buddhism. They embraced everything about it, but they somehow in their cultural mind they, they couldn't make sense of it. And um, so as Zen has come down through Japanese culture and down through um, um, the first generation of American teachers and Australian teachers, um, it was, we, were ne we never thought of desire as something that had to be cut off. We never thought of renunciation in those words. And without really understanding what the word tantra was, I kind of realised now that, 
that Zen practice is a kind of form of Tantra. I thought it was something much more esoteric than what it was, but um, it's simply, um, it's not indulging in life, obviously, you know, that kind of um, addictive nature of life and, and habit, you know, obviously causes suffering. Um, but what we always were taught, and what I just intuitively always felt, that it's not, it's not desire in itself which is the problem. Um, it's grasping desire, you know, it's craving, craving desire. You know, it's like this kind of desperation to have something. Mm -hmm. um, and if you don't get it, then you're going to be disappointed. And even when you do get it, you're disappointed. And so it's never kind of really fulfilling. Um, but that's, that's when it has this kind of craving kind of thirst behind it, drivenness behind it, then it becomes a form of suffering. But I remember Robert Aitken um, always used to say quite frequently in, in talking about desire, he said, if you had no desire, you'd be dead. <laughs> huh? yeah. You'd be dead. Mm -hmm. um, maybe something, some, something comes, gets lost in the translation of some of the words like tanha, which was the, the um, original Buddhist word for desire. But in its essence, it means a kind of... Uh, a grasping desire. And obviously even in, in, um, in um, Southeast Asian Buddhism they talk about unhealthy desire and healthy desire. And they make that distinction that healthy desire, like the desire to be generous, the desire to love, the desire to be kind, you know, a healthy desire. One famous teacher once said that um, it's just, there's no, there isn't any problem with desire in itself, it's just that we desire small things. Mm -hmm. And if we had a bigger desire, you know, if our desire was huge, you know, then, then that would be moving in the right direction. It's because we narrow life down into objects, you know, separate things that I want, and if I get that separate thing, um, then it's going to make me happy, you know, and we, we lose the big picture. We lose the big picture of interbeing and everything that goes with it. Now I realised um, I was actually practising in this this tantra kind of way. In um, as you know, I bought a new boat recently, and um, and I and I realised I was actually being mindful from the very beginning of the desire to have a new boat, uh, and so. Whatever it is that you decide, you know, whether you want a new house or a new car or a new shirt or whatever it might be, um, or you happen to be looking for a partner or whatever, the, whatever the desire is, the tantra way of working with it is, is to allow the desire to be there, you know, to accept it, you know, not to renounce it and go, oh no, you shouldn't have desire. It's actually being with it and being, and being mindful and present with the desire as it plays itself out, you know, and, and if you, if you, with that, you can see the grasping that comes with it, you know, or you can just be with the desire to actually have something and it doesn't necessarily have a grasping quality to it, but unless you allow it to come out and sort of play itself out, you just cut it off. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you cut off something about your own true nature when you just, you know, suppress it.
And then as you, like with the boat, you follow it through and then you get an idea of the kind of boat you want and you research it and you get it. And it's like, I'm 66, I know what's going to happen, right? <laughs> I've been through it before. You have this desire and then, then you see this nice big shiny boat and it's so clean and, you know, modern and so on and showroom new kind of looking. And then, and then you buy it and you're kind of excited about it. So that's okay, you can be excited about it. But somewhere along the line, some disappointment was going to set in, right? It's like, what if, whatever you desire, there will, there will be disappointment. So, um, yesterday week when I went down to my new boat, um, as it had been out on the mooring um, for a week, um, the seagulls had shitted all over it. <laughs> and not only had they, they shit it on the fiberglass where you can just wash it off easily, they shat all over the, the canvas and everything, like it was a real mess. And um, of course, when it's at the brokers, they clean that up all the day, so all the time. You never see all of that. And um, see, the seagulls were teaching me into being. You know, the seagulls weren't, weren't separate from the boat. <laughs> they, they became very, very intimate with the boat, yeah. and so you, you know, got this this desire, this kind of nice shiny object, and it's kind of in the back of your mind. It's gonna, it's like this image. You know, it's going to be shiny and new forever. You know, it's going to be beautiful forever. The seagulls had other ideas, yeah. and then, and then, if you're actually working with desire and you're mindful of desire and you're following through the process, the seagulls shit on your boat and you kind of find it funny, you know, and you find your disappointment funny rather than, you know, making you miserable or angry or whatever. And in many ways um, what we would refer to, you know, in, in counselling and psychotherapy in many ways follows this same tantric model because instead of suppressing emotions, you know, like anger, fear, desire, whatever it might be, it's the same, the same methodology. It's like you, we approach them, you know, we approach anger, we approach fear, we approach shame rather than trying to push them away. And as we approach them, our relationship to them changes. We kind of accept that they're there. And as we accept that they're there, that somehow they don't have the same pressure or force behind them, you know, that pushes us into um, unhealthy ways of being. And they just get integrated. And so that, that same principle kind of follows through in many different ways. Um, of course it's not working towards um, just sort of addiction, indulgence. So it's a very different process. They even even use it in mindfulness with eating disorders. So the way they use mindfulness with eating disorders is instead of saying to people, don't eat big chocolate cakes, whatever you do, don't eat big chocolate cakes, which makes them more interesting. It's like, eat a big chocolate cake and be mindful of when the desire first started in your mind and how you started to fantasise and then, if you're going to eat one, then mindfully get it out of the cupboard and mindfully cut a big piece of it and mindfully chew and try to get as much pleasure out of every single mouthful that you have and swallowing it, right? 
It's like just be mindful minutely of the whole process. And you'll, and you'll notice if you do that, that it never gives you what you thought it was going to give you. Yeah? There's always some kind of disappointment, you know, which comes into it because we've made it, we've turned this thing into a, an object which we think is going to make us happy. And, and we've missed the point of seeing the bigger picture somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, in um, Buddhism, as you know, I'll remind you, one of the, um, in the wheel of life and death, one of the realms is the hungry ghost realm. And in the hungry ghost realm, it's sort of really symbolizes this kind of desire and longing that's never fulfilled. And hungry ghosts have great big bellies and they have a tiny little neck, you know, so it doesn't they doesn't matter how much they eat, they can never fill up their bellies. And they 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 live these kind of miserable lives out in kind of desert landscapes, you know, it's kind of like barren landscapes. And they see an oasis on the horizon. And, and they rush towards it because there they think they're going to get water and nourishment and so on. And when, and when they get to the, near the oasis, they realise it's just a mirage. Right? And then they, they look out another way and they see another mirage and they follow another mirage and another mirage. And it's kind of like it's a very vivid, almost painful, you know, sort of symbolism of the way that we live our lives. You know? um, but, that, but it's like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but not in the sense that there isn't anything that there's things in life that bring us joy and they bring us pleasure you know, um, essential things too and even like um, getting married or having children falling in love They're, in Zen we're not, we're not trying to cut all that off mm-hmm. but we are certainly trying to see into the nature of desire in this tantric kind of way. And um, really when it comes down to practice is that there is the desire and there is the object of desire, whatever that might be, and there's a gap between the two, and the gap is kind of separation, that kind of um, longing between this and that. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's that gap that we enter into um, with mindfulness. So you, there's the desire, the thing desired, and there's the gap in between. And just like I've mentioned too, there's that Tibetan um, imagery which is really beautiful and, and very um, very vivid about uh, when, we, when we're observing thoughts, you know, in meditation, we're like a bird, you know, that's on a branch and, and, the, and the bird branch jumps from one branch to another, like going from one thought to another. But we don't see the, the, um, the gap between the branches, the emptiness between the branches, the air between the branches that the bird jumps between. Mm-hmm. And in mindfulness, we're encouraged to go into that gap between thoughts, the, the emptiness between the thoughts. 
So in the same way with dealing with emotion, you know, and dealing with desire, then the whole idea is to encourage ourselves to go into the gap between the desire and the object that's desired. And what, what's the taste of that, you know, to really taste it? You know what, and the taste of it, just to give it a name, is longing. It's longing, you know. It's kind of, just go into what it's like to long for something. It's kind of like, until I get this, I won't be happy, I think. Um, and then we get it. That's not quite what we thought it was, do you know, or we've got to get another, we've got to get another here, you know. And, um, and so Zen practice is about um, gradually immersing ourselves in the longing in a mindful kind of way. And by doing it, that's, that's transforming things um, by doing it. It's not just a mindless kind of desiring one thing after the other. Um, it actually shifts the experience of it. And as we become more, as we approach that gap in between and we approach the longing and just be one with the longing, um, that's where some kind of transformation takes place. Um, that's kind of the emptiness where something takes place. Um, this lovely poem I came across do you know, remember Khalil Gibran, the mm. Sufi poet? <coughs> your joy is your sorrow unmasked. The self-same will from which la your laughter rises was oft time filled with tears. And how, no and how else can it be? The deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can obtain. Hmm. So it's kind of like it's willing to go into longingness goes together with this sense of unfulfilledness, you know, or sadness or whatever, and um, dissatisfaction. And uh, the more that we can actually enter into the longing, um, the more we somehow get get uh, the grasping drops away. Mm -hmm. Basically, you know, the idea of, delu of delusion or ignorance in Buddhism is that we don't recognise into being. We just see the world split up into different little objects or people, you know, and we've got to have them or possess them. And uh, once, we, once that drops away, we have more the sense of everything being interconnected. Seagulls and boats are interconnected. You know? They're not separate from one another. So that's our practice. That's how Zen practice works. It's not about um, it's not about cutting off desire. It's it's letting it roll, and and noticing all the emotions and everything that actually um, arises out of it. And it's and it seems to me well, it's my personal preference, but it seems to me that it's a more human, but also a more intelligent way of working with that energy um, rather than just cutting it off. See, what can happen in Dharma practice is that um, people can, say for instance, learn mindfulness as a way of calming themselves 
but it's just a kind of, it's, it's only a relaxation response. And there's many people who get attached to that calmness. Mm -hmm. And that's all, they, all they're wanting is the calmness. Um, but it becomes like a little bubble that they get caught in. And they're, they're, and they're, they're irritated if their meditation doesn't always lead to calmness. Um, and all of the Zen literature gives warnings about that kind of experience of just being trapped in the, the calm little bubble of meditation. I mean, you're not really connected to anything. The same can apply with renunciation. You can, you can, you can renounce the world so that you, you find a, a safe little refuge in which you exist. Mm -hmm. um, but again, it's, it's a bubble. Mm -hmm. And eventually, if we really are to awaken, the bubble has to burst. And uh, so renunciation in that sort of very tight, limited kind of way can lead to a dead end, just like meditating just to be calm can lead to a dead end. But when it's insight-based, you know, and it's willing to actually be there present with all the good, the bad and the ugly of our experience that comes through, we've got a, we've got a chance to, to, to break out of the bubble, the bubble of separateness. So, there we are, desire. Mm -hmm.